sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's right. Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. It's your place for all the rumors and innuendo you wanted to know about and if you want to get involved in action. We are the story guys at gmail.com. There's typically like three ingredients to this podcast. Me, you, and the listeners. But also, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? You never say it as much as I do. You I do say it like more, that. but it's definitely part of it. And sometimes we air more on one of those ingredients than the other, right? And today... That's true. What we're going to do up front, I'm just going to warn you. Let's talk about sex, baby. Yeah, baby. It's going to get a little sexy. It's going to get a little sexy. How are we doing it? The other night, I I did a dramatic reading of the lyrics to the song, The Butt. (laughs) There's not a lot of lyrics to that song. But anyway, I'm so ready. Take us down. Uh, Okay, uh, so I I might be overselling. I mean, it's nothing that should make anyone too hot under the collar, but the letters asking about one particular subgenre of story have been stacking up and i think it's time to address those and those those are questions murdoch about birthday suits have you ever referred to your naked body as your birthday suit i'm gonna say no follow-up question what's the most naked you've ever been in a public place naked like all the way naked sure yeah okay but paint the picture here i mean not like what you look like naked but where where were you (laughs) when you were completely naked in public Um, It's a very different show than I thought I was tuning into. (laughs) The last time I remember this happening, and it was over 20 years ago, I was in a party, and it was in it was at the in the Hamptons, Uh, (laughs) and it was and it was and and it was late, and things were. I mean, it might have been like three or four o'clock in the morning. Are we suddenly on premium HBO on Sunday night? What you were naked at a party in the Hamptons? Give me all the details. And I have no idea what occurred to make this happen but i took off all my clothes and i jumped in the pool not realizing that the pool was a little deeper than i thought it was and it was at least it wasn't empty it was freezing cold and i came up Uh, george costanza as soon as i came up i was like get me out of here someone give me a noodle get me out of here it's so cold um and then um a week later, I was at a party at, at this place, and I ran into all these people from that party, and I was like, hey, what's up? And we're all like having just a super laugh, and then one guy goes, we saw your dick. <laughs> <laughs> and that's never happened ever again. Just saying. Okay, I got That was freaky. I, I have one more follow-up question in this line of questions, which is... <laughs> Not not about this story. Not about this story. No. Do you ever have anxiety dreams where you are naked in the dream? No. Okay. So that's not that's not anxiousness for you. That that doesn't cause stress. It. I think it probably does, but I don't have dreams about it. Okay. Okay. All right. Now I just don't care. (laughs) Plenty of things stress me out. That one I'm not. That one I'm not worried about. Okay. So. Questions rolling through the email inbox. You've already mentioned this. We are the story guys at gmail.com. We're going to approach this a little differently than normal. Instead of attacking a single big question or mystery today, we're, we're going to knock out several smaller, slinkier, sexier tales. Are you ready? <laughs> I guess. All right, here's the first one. Set that up, set that up weird. We're, go, we're going straight we in. This creep. We went creepy all the <laughs> way from the go, beginning. We didn't go creepy. We're just talking about yeah. the naked body. It's fine. Very yeah. sex positive these days. Okay. Is it true, that's true that the Bengals recorded Eternal Flame in the nude? That's that's the question, the query. 
Yeah, yeah. we. Yeah, that's that's a definite yes. Okay, no. It was tell, a produ- tell, producer asked her to, and then she did it. Well, you're you're a little off. Okay, tell me about your relationship with that group of ladies, the Bengals. Um, were they I at the party that, in the Hamptons? No, and, and but boy, I thought Susanna Haas was really pretty when I was a kid. Um, and she like went out with Prince. That was a real thing. Uh, I think I don't know if it was the band or her that was mad about Hazy Shade of Winter when they covered that for the Less Than mm-hmm. Zero soundtrack because mm-hmm. one group, either her or the band, wanted it to be a heavy, a heavier track. Oh, really? And it ended up being yeah, and it ended up being the song that you know, which. Right is a heavier track than Simon and Garfunkel, but someone wanted to go and, and that was a divisive decision. So uh, at that, that point in their career, there were a lot of divisive decisions happening, right? We're going to, we're going to get there because this is sort of what the center, what the story centers around is, is that later part of their career. But I don't know. Do you know much about the formation of the Bengals? It's like really interesting. It's like the opposite of missed connections. Uh, th- they yeah. were like a connection that should have missed and somehow didn't. And this is actually a story about the careening of two different classified ads. Remember those things taken out in 1980. There was this LA paper called the recycler. They're both looking. That's how they met Mick Mars. I went to Motley Crue. I got there in two notes. (laughs) So Motley Crue met Mick Mars through the recycler. Was it the recycler? It's like, I'm going straight from Motley Crue right now. I mean, how many minutes buy that? I would buy that. Yeah. We're not very many minutes in Uh, loud, rude, aggressive guitar player. So, so there were two ads. Yeah. So both of these members, both of these ads are looking for bandmates. Susanna Haas puts one out. And the other is put out by this girl, Lynn Elkind. And Susanna gets just one response. So she combs the paper and sees this other ad, Lynn Elkind, because she's also looking for bandmates. And in this crazy cosmic coincidence, or not-so-subtle act by the guy that governs all things rock, Lynn is not home. So her roommate, Vicki Peterson, answers the phone. And it will be Vicky and her sister Debbie, not Lynn Eklund, who will join musical forces with Susanna Hoffs and eventually become the Bengals. Uh, because <clears throat> Lynn Eklund, who placed the ad, had been in a band with these two sisters and they just parted ways. But, oh. But they See, like, I, still I, live together. So I knew there was something about them. That there was some connection, but, uh, but I didn't really know the backstory at all. This is interesting. Yeah, so sure. they were called the Colors first and then the Bangs. And then there was like a copyright thing. So they added some letters that became the Bengals. Uh, we talked a little bit recently about the aesthetic of East Coast and West Coast music, and more specifically, like the superficiality that LA will come to represent to some. And I think you can attribute this at least partly, of course, to the proximity of Hollywood making, uh, you know, LA music just sort of like another form of show business, right? And if you want to make a case for this view, this idea that sometimes it is the flashy people you know and not only your artistic talent that matter, you you could use the Bengals as Exhibit A because the Bengals get some mainstream attention from a video they make for a song they cover, not, not the Simon and Garfunkel cover, a song they cover that was originally written by Katrina and the Waves called Going Down to Liverpool. Do you remember this? Wow. No, this okay. is crazy. Now, they make a video for this. Do you know why people are interested in this video? Because Susanna Hoffs is in it? No, because Dr. Spock is in it. <laughs> so Wait, Leonard Nimoy's Leonard in it? Leonard Nimoy's in it. So in 66, Tamar Simon Hoffs, the mother of Susanna Hoffs, was okay. encouraged by Leonard Nimoy to join the crew of his movie project, Death Watch. Oh my gosh. You ever seen Death Watch? I have not. Have you? No. I don't. Dude, I went to the Star Trek thing at the Hilton in Las Vegas. Of course I've seen... <laughs> Sure. 
Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Mr. Ho- <laughs> Mrs. Hoffs accepts, and that decision leads her to change her career. She goes into film and video. And in 1984, when it comes time for the Bengals to film their first music video, Mama Hoffs is going to direct the video because she's in the film industry. So for the shoot, she goes, listen, I'll call in a favor. And she calls Leonard Nimoy to play the chauffeur in the video for going down to Liverpool. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's so amazing. Everyone, when this is over... Go YouTube Leonard Nimoy's music. He has a he has a record called Highly Illogical, and he does covers of like uh, Peter Paul and Mary and all kinds of stuff. And it's and it's with that baritone, and so everything sounds, you know, remarkably the same. Um, and I can't. This is awesome. Susanna Hoff's mom hung out with Spock. This isn't their only big break, right? They go on tour with Cindy Lauper, catch the attention of Prince. They record his song. Manic Monday, put out a record in 86 called A Different Light. And this will include a cover of Big Star September Girls. Like, covers really work for these guys. Uh, it, because yeah. you've already mentioned, they score this other hit on the Less Than Zero soundtrack when they try their hands at Hazy Shade of Winners, having a Garfunkel, of course. Who else is on the, the Less Than Zero soundtrack? Slayer does Inagata DeVita. No, they don't. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah, sure they do. And then Danzig has an original tune that's on there. Like those three are the, those are the standout tracks. Okay, like, absolutely on that record. Well, so there is like this sort of identity crisis they have a little bit, right? Like there, I mean, that's a funny place to put them next to Slayer on a soundtrack. Um, but they they're doing well, right? Why mess with it? So they go into the studio and they start working on new songs, and they get to bring in the big dogs to help them now because there's a lot riding on this. They've been on a hot streak and nobody wants us to stop. So joining the gals for a riding session this time around is this guy, Billy Steinberg. Billy Steinberg spends most of his career with a songwriting partner named Tom Kelly. And these two dudes together will write like basically the greatest female fronted pop songs of the eighties. I want to hear or hang out with these guys. Okay. Here's here is just a sampling of what these two guys write. They write like a virgin by Madonna. They write True Colors by Cindy Lauper. They write So Emotional by Whitney Houston. They write Alone oh my gosh. by Heart. Oh, by Heart? Oh, wow. They write I Touch Myself by The Divinals. Yes, written by two dudes. And they write I'll <laughs> Stand By You by The Pretenders. All of those written by the same songwriting team. Wow. It's so a, that's, an, that's an amazing group of songs. Amazing. So they get to do this session with Susanna Huffs. And I guess part of the magic is this, like, get-to-know-your-co-writer stuff. So they're, like, telling stories and trading tales. And these guys get Susanna talking. And this is her uh, later telling the story. I went over to Billy's and was telling him about a Bengals trip to Graceland in Memphis. When we got to Elvis's grave, we started recreating Spinal Tap singing Heartbreak Hotel. And then we noticed... (laughs) (laughs) Just picture that for a second. Susanna Hoffs and the Bengals... Aping Spinal Tap at Elvis's real grave. Um, Since my baby left, (laughs) found a new place to dwell. That whole thing is so brilliant. Okay, so what? So they're doing that in real life. They're doing that, and then they look and they notice that there is this box by the grave that is typically has a fire in it, and it's out. It's usually always lit, and uh, she mentions it, and she says the eternal flame at the grave was out because it was raining. And Billy says, wait, 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 Eternal Flame? That's a great name for a song. And within about an hour, we had the lyrics. 
end quote. Uh, but what does any of this have to do with nudity, right? Well, when it came to do this album... Okay, you took us a long way to fast-forward this VHS tape from the <laughs> 80s, Brian. <laughs> Super funny. So okay. when it came to this new album, which will become known as Everything, they want to get a new producer. Because even though A Different Light was a big hit... The production on it was pretty heavy-handed, and it became known that even the band was sort of unhappy with the layers of production that they thrown on it. And I think this goes back a little bit to what you were saying about the Hazy Shade of Winter thing, right? Like, they sort of want to be taken more seriously as rockers, and I think there's some tension in the band. Some of that is conjecture on my part, but I think that's what's happening. So they go from David Kahn, who had done the first record, to a guy named David Sigerson. Now... This dude's really interesting because he basically tries his hand at every part of the rock and roll process at some point in the 80s and then decides just to write novels. <laughs> like in the 90s, he starts writing books. In the early 80s, he actually released a couple albums of his own. Like he just does everything. And, and he'll write a bunch of songs for other people, <laughs> including there's one we have to mention because you already tried to put Motley Crue into this conversation. So you know we have to talk about the other band we bring everything back to, which is New Kids on the Block. Yes. And y- you know. <laughs> The Gene Simmons solo album. Yeah, that has the Lou Reed song on it. Well, so this guy, David Sigerson, co-wrote Good Girl Gone Bad. Oh. He had done a little bit of production before he gets the Bengals gig, and the most noteworthy of which was Olivia Newton-John. And so when they get to vocal tracks in the studio, he jokingly tells Susanna Hoffs that the secret to Olivia Newton-John's great vocal takes was that she was naked when she recorded them. Yeah, and that's bogus. Yeah, that's not true. That's not true. He just says it to her. But here is Susanna retelling this story years later. This is a quote. I imagined it would feel like skinny dipping. You know, like in the Hamptons. Vulnerable yet freeing. (laughs) And I decided to try it. Nobody could see me. There was a, a baffle in front of me and it was dark. And after the first song went so well, I became superstitious about it, like in sports where you have to have your rabbit's foot. And I ended up compelled to skinny dip my way through most of the album, including Eternal Flame. Oh, through most of it. So most of that record. So did all of the Bengals record the song naked? No. Did Susanna Hoffs record most of the Everything album in the buff? Yes. Yes, she did. Wow. Super interesting. Now, I I didn't know that. I thought it was just the song. This taking on nudity as a thing... Is is like worth noting as a symbol of what is about to happen to this band about Susanna Hoff's kind of stepping out on her own, right, and exposing herself. Yeah. Eternal Flame is so successful that it sort of derails the band because Susanna Hoff's is so front and center to that success that the Bengals start to be perceived be perceived as her vehicle, and the video is centered around her. Right, right, and right. So right. it's it's very much. That's because that was MTV, and that's that's what happened there. You yeah. Know, I think oh, yeah, a yeah, lot of yeah. And, and that classic tension will rip the band apart. Rip the group apart to the extent that when Debbie Peterson gets married, Susanna Hoffs and Michael Steele, the bass player, they won't even go to the wedding. They're donezo. Yeah. Wow. It's Susanna goes right. solo six months after Eternal Flame. That's how quickly it happens. Oh, wow. I didn't know that at all. So did she... Uh, so so is, this, is this where the... The nudity for Susanna Hoff's ends. Just where it happens. I mean, I don't she know if that record. Yeah, I didn't hear if this is like a thing that she does for the rest of her recording career. I, I, I don't know. There is a fun final side note on the song itself that has nothing to do with who was wearing what while it was recorded. That legendary songwriter, Billy Steinberg, was interviewed about this song 
And it's fun to read his take on it because he explains, he's like clearly such a nerd because he's like made all these songs and there's like a formula to it. He like wants to tell you, right? So he explains how they borrowed the structure from We Can Work It Out by the Beatles for Eternal Flame. <laughs> and, and he explains this as saying it doesn't have a true chorus, right? It has two bridges. Right. It technically doesn't have a chorus. Uh-uh, it technically yeah. doesn't have a chorus. Listen to it again. So, so, so that's sort of fun. The show is brought to you in part today by Our Brains Hurt. If there is one thing that Murdoch and I love, it's punk rock. You've heard us talk about it a lot recently on the show. And if you need a little more punk rock in your life, if you need another podcast to add to your listening list, uh, check out Our Brains Hurt. Ron and Matt. Both dudes from the Washington, D.C. area. They started this podcast during the COVID shutdowns because they wanted to give local punk bands an outlet to continue to put things out. So they've been at it now for a couple of years. And they have had some badass guests. How about uh, Ben Weasel, Joe Queer, Richie Ramone, Guar's Sleazy P. Martini? <laughs> and that's not even to mention all the other badasses from the local scene, etc. Our Brains Hurt is your very own punk rock audio green room. Each week, Ron and Matt sitting down with a new guest, chatting about shows, talking about tours, discovering records, whatever else comes up. And you can find it anywhere that you get your favorite podcasts. Or you can head over to their website. That's Our Brains Hurt. O-U-R Brains Hurt dot com. All right. One lascivious letter down. You ready for another one? Oh, yeah. Thanks for sending the letters, by the way, everybody. Like, look what you do. You're like, program our show uh, and make it super fun. Okay. This is great. Okay, letter number two. This is from Declan. Hey, guys, I love the show, but you never talk about Kenny Loggins. Forget the hits. Is it true that he had a nudist wedding? Oh, my gosh. What a great letter. Holy cow. When I say Kenny Loggins, what do you associate with Kenny Loggins? Danger zone. (laughs) The entire eighties. And hey, radio guy Brian. When when I was ten, there was there were there were two radio stations in my hometown, and one of them is is deceased. It's defunct. But when it was still on the air, it was the radio station I was on when I was a kid, and they they did the stunt in eighty four, and they played Footloose for a week. For a week. Oh, good like, God. Just, just, yeah, it's just footloose. <laughs> I don't think it was I don't think it was 24 hours because all I remember hearing was footloose. So I know it had to be longer than a day, you know. So but yeah, they stunted footloose. And so I think about I think about all those soundtracks and I don't think about the amazing work in the 70s where he had right, other right. hits. Yeah. Oh, I can only think about him nude now. What is happening? <laughs> It's going to take us a minute to get there. Okay. He, so he becomes known as the king of the soundtrack. This is literally like how people refer to him in the 80s. I'm not even going to list all of the movies. Here's the big ones, right? Uh, Top Gun, Caddyshack, Footloose, Over the Top. Um, He did stuff with Winnie the Pooh and Elmo. He's just, he's big and popcorn-y, right? But before that, you alluded to this. The dude was writing songs for the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Uh, yeah. And he meets a guy who'd been in Buffalo, Springfield, and Poco. I feel like the phrase, he was in Buffalo, Springfield, and Poco, is becoming part of every episode of this show, and I don't know it's, why. It's happened recently. It's happened it recently. Dates, it sounds like it's dating Brian a bit, <laughs> like that Brian went to Woodstock when 
like Brian went to the Warp Tour. Like yeah. he did, like he does not see Buffalo Springfield and Poco or like not hey, the guy laying was out on the, on the turntable. Hey, the guy was in Poco. <laughs> we've actually gotten Thank some. You. We've gotten some questions and some letters about like going more in depth on Poco, and I feel like I'm giving you enough Poco content on this show. Yeah. Thank uh, you, Taco, for that tribute to Poco. Okay. <laughs> nice. Okay, that of course. This guy from Poco, this particular guy from Poco in Buffalo Springfield, is Jim Messina. Uh, and, and they become an accidental duo. Did you know that Messina's just like hired as a producer? And Oh, no, no. I thought it was a real duo. No, cause, like, because he's been in Buffalo Springfield and Poco, he's got like this musical reputation that will give Logan some cred as he launches his career. So it's like this thing where they the label or somebody puts it together uh but they get along so well that they end up billing themselves as a duo at the beginning logins and messina they're, they're going to do six records together in a really short period of time plus a couple of live records in a collection of covers um well, that's a lot of ten that's a lot of that's 10 records if i counted right or thing like nine, yeah nine or ten <laughs> but by 77 kenny goes out on his own with his album called celebrate me home and that sets off a string of solo records through the end of the decade. And then he becomes, like I said, the king of soundtracks. But in the midst of this transition, he will get married. And he will marry a woman in 1978 named Eva Ein. And she will bear three of his children. And they officially stay married through 1990. But Kenny makes it clear to Eva from the beginning that he is not going to stop being footloose on the road. And yes, that means women. How gross. <clears throat> but it also means drugs and booze. And so by like 1982, he's developing an ulcer. And he gets referred to a colon cleansing specialist. This is not where you thought this story was going, is it? No, we went, we went just like completely on the other I side. I just breezed through 12 years of a monumental career to get to a yeah. doctor's visit. To get to a colonoscopy. Yeah. No, it's totally different. Okay, I have serious questions for you. Don't laugh. Okay. Do you, yeah. Mark Murdoch, think that you could be sexually attracted to someone after first intimately working on and definitely closely examining their colon? Just marinate um, on that for a second. I, I, I just don't know the answer to that weird question. <laughs> that sounds like a, it sounds like a hard pass, but I can't, I can't wait it for a, where it might the, be a soft I can't, pass. I can't, oh my gosh, I can't wait for where the hell this is going. Okay, so and if this is going where I think we're going directly from there, and we're going there, like... So this colon cleansing take specialist... Us, take us to the mountaintop, Brian. Her name is Julia Cooper. And when they meet, they're both married. Kenny to Eva, Julia to this other guy who has colon cancer. <laughs> she really has a type. And so for years... They have a oh my gosh. they have a warm friendship. That is a phrase I read in several places that admittedly seems like not the way to describe any sort of dabbling with your colon doctor. But Julia is not <laughs> only interested. It. She's not only interested in the physical cleaning. She has also been studying a specific form of talk therapy. This sounds like I'm making this up. I swear to God, this is all true. And so over the course of these regular appointments. <laughs> They have to clean Kenny physically. And then they start having these very intense open conversations, a lot of them being about how Kenny's marriage is not in good shape. Now, they do not turn romantic until the end of the decade. This starts in 82. 
<laughs> just no, 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 this sounds real. It's so I know, so I know, it's so this real, dude. Camera. It's so real. This is the danger. This is the danger zone guy. Like his his whole life revolved around going to get a colonoscopy. This huge important thing, and we like when we think about him, we think about those freaking planes in danger zone. Like, oh my gosh. Okay, it's because he an went amazing so, career. And what's arc. like funnier about it is that it's because he went so hard in the seventies with Jim Messina. Like they literally. <laughs> He did so many drugs he screwed up his digestive system and like oh we don't gosh. even think about that okay anyway so <clears throat> <laughs> we've really brought down the quality of this show today and i just want to apologize but i want to say that it's been in pursuit of the truth listen we're just trying to answer the question you're asking that that's what we do we just you guys wanted to know about nudity and so we're answering your letters <laughs> okay thanks because okay. this relationship has existed mostly as a relationship based on very open communication up to this point, they adopt this radical form of communication based on literally telling each other everything, and they allow it to define how they relate to each other. And so when they decide to make this relationship official and permanent in the eyes of the law, because they eventually, at the end of the 80s, they both leave their, their current marriages, and they decide they want to have a marriage ceremony to quote, embody our highest aspirations as a couple. And now I'm going to read from Kenny's memoir, Still All Right, right now. Quote. Oh, that is the name of his book. It's, it's so it's good. definitely okay. called that. Uh, the purest representation of what we were trying to achieve was to strip away every layer of pretense, even our clothes. That's right. We were going to get married in the buff with literally nothing to hide from each other or the people around us. We would be starting our lives over together, naked as babies. Now, this is where it gets fun. He continues. Also, we requested that everybody in the wedding party join us in the nude. Okay, second question for you, Murdoch. If I had yep. a nude ceremony of some sort and invited you to join me, would you attend? God. What kind of ceremony, Brian? I, I, like, any, any sort of ceremony for the prerequisite is nudity. <laughs> would you be a part of it? I, I think, and I hate to put limits on on our <laughs> our love brian but if you're like it's like hey i want to do a listening party for the new radiohead album let's all listen to it in the nude i'm gonna be like i'm gonna pass dude like can i just wear jeans and we get a pizza but if you're like hey me and the old lady we're like going to the fiji islands and we're gonna do this thing and we want you to be there and we're all gonna be nude it's like well, i don't know that sounds like it's an it's interesting cocktail to, party conversation it's starter. Hard. It's also like it's also something at that point that would feel like, well, I guess I should say yes. Like that feels like a, you know. But yeah, you can't do a listening party. For <laughs> <new> <laughs> release. It's got to be significant. Kenny goes on to say in the book that the request for the wedding party to be naked quote spurred a few of our guests to drop out, including my brother Bob. <laughs> Come on, Bob! It's a special moment, brother Bob. Yeah. But he says, quote, as it turned out, he didn't have any reason to worry. The day was so cold and damp that we ended up adding layers, not removing them. So if you read that correctly, the answer to the question is he was going to have a nude wedding ceremony. But it actually sounds like it ended up being pretty dressed down. <laughs> it sounded like he wrote about all of that until the last sentence and said, psych. And it's like, right. <laughs> So, so no, so I don't. No, I don't think he, he didn't did. get married in the. He didn't get married. Kenny Loggins, Danger Zone, did not get married in the nude. <laughs> Danger Zone. 
<laughs> when I hear Footloose, I don't even know what to. <laughs> it seems like the it's kind of like the Chattahoochee sort of. So can I tell you a few more notes on this story as we wrap it up? Oh yeah, this uh, is so much fun, dude. Th- this relationship he has with Julia and the total honesty, new age mysticism, spiritualism thing. He's going to adopt this as partly it's going to overshadow Kenny Loggins music for like a decade in 97. He and Julia write a book called the unimaginable life. You can still buy it on Amazon. And yes, for God's sake, it is in the show notes. Uh, It's about their approach to marriage. I have thumbed through it and it is quite the read. Uh, what happens though is the press will go to town on this. At some point during the early research for this, I found this archive Chicago Tribune review of a reading that Kenny and Julia did for their book, like a promo appearance. They did a reading. They went on a book, book tour. Yeah. He actually blamed well, wait, I'll, I'll wait for that because I don't want to give away the punchline to this, but okay. And I so I've gone back to locate it for the show notes, this review from the Chicago Tribune. I think it's in ninety seven. I cannot find it. It's like they've taken it down since I initially read this a while back. But there is this memorable moment in that piece where the writer describes being in the back of this packed bookstore and standing next to a guy. And the guy is slowly realizing that Kenny Loggins is not going to sing. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. He like turns to the writer and he's like, this dude's not going to sing. Is he <laughs> like, what did I come he's to? Not, he's not going to play danger zone or footloose. No, uh, no, but there's some actual real vitriol spewed about this. There's this famous Kurt Loder segment on MTV where he will bash and mock the book. And oh when man, I've yeah, never uh-huh. seen that. And, okay. And show you, notes. I'm excited if we have that. When you hear about the book and the principles they're extolling in the abstract, it does sound fairly wonky, but actually examining some of it in the research, I don't think it's that weird. I mean, it's it's not for everybody, but it's not that weird. But what's made this whole period of Loggins become more of a punchline is that he was out there peddling how that, you know, this is the right way to do marriage. This is the right way to do marriage. This is extreme and on the edge, honesty, all this stuff. And in 2004, Julia surprises Kenny with divorce papers, <laughs> which I shouldn't laugh at. I shouldn't laugh at. But he says, quote, I was completely blindsided. I felt like I'd been fired from my marriage. Quote, it's still remarkable to me that we wrote a book about how to make love last, and within a few years we were separated. I was not prepared for that. Wow, that's that's really devastating. It, that's, it is, but he, I, he, there is a part of this that made me not feel as bad for him. He, he does spend some time in his memoir thoughtfully explaining how he now thinks things went wrong, and it does add up quite a bit. When a relationship starts, doctor, therapist, and patient doctor dichotomy and then it shifts there's all sorts of power imbalance there's all sorts of issues right julia was a hippie he was a celebrity trying to merge those two lifestyle aesthetics gets really complicated he gets almost 100 percent of my sympathy in this book until the sentence and i'm talking about his memoir not his not the book with julia but there is this sentence is in the book and honestly i cannot believe his editor did not have him remove this i can't believe they left this in quote Oh my gosh. Julia Julia found my need for a normal home life. Dash. Even my request to put on some makeup and maybe fix her hair now and then. Dash. To be oppressive. (laughs) Oh my gosh. What? A dickhead. Uh, (laughs) He writes this whole book. (laughs) He's like, I can't believe I screwed this up. I can't blah, blah, blah. He's like, you know, if she just put some damn makeup on every once in a while. Every once in a while, make yourself up. What's he doing? (laughs) Okay. Okay. Holy shit. Okay. We're done with that.
Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I love talking about rock and roll history. Not as fond about talking about my immune system and my gut health. But if you get in a situation where you are having problems with those things, it becomes very, very important. So let's get you in a place where you're not having problems with those things. I say that because Athletic Greens was created by a guy who experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on this complicated supplement routine that cost him 100 bucks a day. And he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's when he came up with this. It costs you less than $3 a day. It's lifestyle friendly. doesn't matter if you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free like half of my house. Any of that is fine. This will still work for you and it's going to do things to help your nervous system, your gut health, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, your focus, all that stuff. Find out. It's simple. All you have to do is head over to athleticgreens.com slash emerging and take ownership over your health and pick up a little daily nutritional insurance. They're going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. Is that enough noodle or should we do one more? We're going to do... Let's do one more. Do we... Uh, we we're good on time? Yeah, we, we can, No, we can right. do this. We can do this. Okay. Amber. Okay. This sounds incredibly far-fetched to me, but my brother-in-law swears the Madonna tried to convince Rancid to sign to her record label by sending them naked photos of herself. Tell me that's not true. Hmm. I don't know. You know, she tried to sign the Archers of Loaf, and they said no. Really? I did not know that. That did not come up in the research. Let's start by rephrasing that question. Has it been said in reputable press outlets that this happened? The answer to that is definitely yes. January 28th, 1996, Section 6, page 30 of the New York Times. There is a profile on the band Rancid. It is entitled, What's in a Mohawk? And it does include 1996. January 96. So this is is what happened in 94, 95. So this is when Rancid was kind of pretty hot. Oh, that oh, time. yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. But Ruby, Ruby Soho and all that, like uh-huh, we've already done, uh-huh, that's yeah, already yeah. happened. So okay. it includes this paragraph. This article from the New York Times includes this paragraph. Madonna started coming to Rancid shows and sent a naked photograph of herself pleading with the band to sign with her label instead of Epic, who had offered a deal worth $1.5 million. Now, that said, could this have been a rumor that all parties allowed to be accepted as truth? I think that's probably pretty possible, just as possible as it actually happening. In 2022, we sort of forget how revolutionary Madonna was. Like, we pay lip service to her a bit, but I think we forget her influence and how willing to risk for risque she was. Case in point, she does, in fact, start Maverick Records in April of 1992. As a unit of Maverick Entertainment Company, it was a joint venture among Madonna, Frederick DeMann, and Veronica Ronnie Dashiv, and Time Warner. And its name was combined form of the three founders madonna veronica frederick maverick oh well that's interesting the venture was part of a 60 million dollar recording a business deal between madonna and time warner and it gave her one of the highest rates in the industry in royalties it gave her 20 percent royalties from the music proceedings oh, what <clears throat> oh man that is so some peter grant brutal manager rate there Colonel you go tom parker actually there you go yeah. so and how does she launch this record-setting big-deal business venture, a venture that essentially makes her the first female artist to have a real label and one of the very few number of women to run her own entertainment company? How does she launch it? She launches this with two related and very controversial efforts, a 1992 coffee table book called Sex yep, and an accompanying studio album called Erotica. 
which is also about, you guessed it, sex. Now, keep in mind, this is also the same time that the movie Body of Evidence comes out. How, how recently have you seen Body of Evidence? I don't think I've seen it since then if I had. It's just unfamiliar in my head. You it has, to, you're going to have to. It's become infamous for being a pretty terrible movie. And it was a huge bomb from a financial perspective. It cost $30 million and it made $13 million. But yeah. I actually read that the producer begged Madonna to delay the release of the Sex Coffee Table book because he thought it would confuse moviegoers into thinking the body of evidence was all part of the book release, like it was Sex Book the movie. Yeah, that's too many things. Yeah, and he blamed the lackluster performance on the fact that she wouldn't push the release back. But I bring this all up as a reminder of the precedents that existed for Madonna in using sex appeal as her brand. This is like what she does, right? So that ironically both makes the naked photo part of this rancid story more believable and also like less believable to me because it almost is too on brand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it very much sounds like something that she would have done at this period. Yeah. Hey, I got a question for you, Brian. Madonna question. You and I, we grew up differently with a different Madonna experience, I'm sure 100%. What happened to you and where were you when you saw the um, – saw Madonna's Like a Prayer video where she's dancing like in the field and there's like burning crucifixes and stuff. Oh yeah. Like, I, do you remember so, that? And like, and mm -hmm. cause that's gotta be weird. Yeah. I don't remember seeing it as a child. I remember a general perception of Madonna as being off limits. I do remember that. I will say I watched body of evidence. Like, I don't know, three years ago for the first time. And I was like, this, I bet this movie right. doesn't. I bet this movie is not even titillating. That's not entirely true. Uh, but it's not a very good movie. Did you know she picked Willem Dafoe like as her co-star in that movie? She picked him. Which it seems yeah. like a weird flex. Like, why Willem yeah. Dafoe? What, by the way, Desperately Seeking Susan, much better movie. I've seen it a hundred times. <laughs> I'll slide off on that. I'll sign off on that. But I yeah, love that movie. Uh, Madonna, Madonna was a strange entity to me. Like I just knew that she had been pushing the limits on a lot of things, and that like even the, and she was another one of those. I talk about this a lot, like where the music didn't sound scary, right? Like I always thought it was weird that the music sounded goofy to pop me. Music. Yeah. Right, it was pop, pop music, music, right? And Prince was. I say this about Prince. Like I always thought, well, Prince must be like heavy metal. Well, not right. He's like funk. I didn't have any concept of why something was off limits unless it was like heavy. Like for some reason, heavy metal made sense to be off limits. Right. But nothing else did. So it was very like this weird cognitive dissonance to me that yeah. Madonna was, was quote unquote bad or, you know, not something I should be listening to or paying attention to. But, it, uh, but then the songs just sounded goofy. Yeah. Um, Man, I'm going to, well, I was going to like say, I want to watch Body of Evidence, but maybe I don't. <laughs> but let's keep going. I know she signed the Deftones. I know that uh, happened. That's, okay, so. Like a, that's a power move as far as I'm concerned. Here, here is what we do know for sure, right? We do know that Madonna was trying to sign Rancid to Maverick Records. And I, it sounds sort of bizarre, but the timing of all this is important context. In 94, 95, a couple of albums have just hit the mainstream that have changed the face of popular music. Dookie by Green Day and smashed by the offspring and the offspring are on the same label as ransom. They're on epitaph records, which is a scrappy independent ill-equipped 
record label to handle the volume that the offspring smash is selling. And Green Day and The Offspring are both being offered major deals with big record labels, so it makes sense that the feeding frenzy is created where corporate money is being commanded to go find a version of this emerging pop punk for every company's shareholders. It makes sense that Rancid would end up on that list. Now, there is this book called No Slam Dancing, No Stage Diving, and No Spikes, An Oral History of the Legendary City Gardens by Amy Yates Wilfling and Stephen Dilla. Divico, and it chronicles oh the my gosh, great documentary, by the way, too. But go ahead. Oh, okay, okay. So you've seen this? Yeah, John Stewart was a bartender there. Yeah. So yeah, historic venue in New Jersey, and there's a guy who's heavily involved in that scene who is Rancid's tour manager during this record label courting period when they're touring with Offspring. And he tells this elaborate story about a couple of nights with the band where he keeps trying to clear their tiny dressing room out only to come face-to-face with powerful people. Here's an excerpt. Rancid finishes and leaves the stage. The roadie and the t-shirt guy and I are all moving the gear, and I turn around to see that it's a ghost town. There's nobody on stage and nobody in the VIP area that I had set up to keep people out of the dressing room, so I know there's only one place they can be, downstairs, where I told them not to be. I know that somebody somewhere is going bananas because there's going to be 50 people in that tiny hallway, so I go down there, and I hear the manager of Rancid saying, and this is Matt Freeman. He's the bass player. No. Matt Freeman is a take-no-guff, chain-smoking guy whose dad was an Oakland cop during the riots, and he's taken on a bit of that world-weariness himself. He does not suffer fools, but I hear Matt Freeman go, well, it's very nice to meet you, and something to the effect of, I'm a huge fan. And I'm thinking, that doesn't sound like Matt Freeman. What? What? I pop down to the lower level, and I look toward the dressing rooms, and I see all these New York tough guys standing against the wall with their hands at their sides, staring at the floor like they're seventh-grade boys at the first dance. Something doesn't fit. And by this time, I'm mad because these people were clogging the hallway and they had passes with Rance's name on it, which is my reputation. The people at the club are looking at me. Well, what are you going to do about this? This is not cool. The Offsprings manager says to me very calmly, and this is Jim, our tour manager, and he says this to someone standing in a doorway immediately to my right. I turn, not really paying attention, and I say, how you doing? And I'm pissed. Like, I'm not paying attention. My attention is focused immediately back on the hallway. And I say, all right, everybody, you can't hang out in this hallway. I'm really sorry. I set up a VIP area upstairs, but you... you if you have all access passes, you got to get out of here. You, you know, you're my problem. At least get into the dressing rooms and get out of the hallway. And for whatever reason, it worked. All the New York tough guys that I was terrified of slunk back into the room. Matt Freeman walks in, sits down and says, kind of crazy, right? And I say, yeah. And then after a moment, I say, did I just blow off Madonna? And he says, yep. And that was pretty fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Uh, so wow. If, I didn't know that Rancid got courted by Madonna. Amazing. If you know nothing about Rancid history, I will spoil the story by telling you that they turn down all the major label money. They stay on Epitaph Records. Photos or no photos, they won't be convinced. Uh, it's widely accepted that the photo happened. Though, as I have said, I sort of, like, it's never surfaced. It's only spoken of in, like, this abstract, like, she sent a photo. But, like, no one's ever talked about it in any detail that I can find. Which I'm not saying they should, but I'm saying like you would think that at some point there would be some more detail than like, oh, we got a photo. Um, and like there's some reports that say it was faxed, which is quaint. Uh, yeah, but okay. Weird. The, I mean, it probably wouldn't like it would be a real grainy photo. Uh, the one thing that gives me pause about all of this is that I just can't unearth much in the way of any detail about it. It's just this one sentence anecdote that gets passed around, but it's interesting. And I think it's interesting, you know, like we 
this is why we talk about these things in rock and roll lore, right? Because sometimes it doesn't matter if they happen. If enough people sort of think they do, they have it the happened. same effect. Yeah, it happened. Like it, it just it doesn't matter. Enough it's of the like other the stuff happened, right? Like it, it it's it's mostly true. So there you go. That's that's the best I could do on that one. That's a lot of of nudity talk. Feel feel good. You feel comfortable. You feel okay. You feel okay about what we've just put out into the world. I just want to say thanks to to our listeners who make this show fantastic, <laughs> and thanks for. I'm not, try, I'm not trying to make it uh, in jest because we talked what we talked about today. Like, thanks so much for listening and sending us letters because uh, it definitely makes it fun, obviously, for us and hopefully for you, too. Yeah. And again, we are the story guys at gmail.com. Uh, you can also tweet at Murdoch if you want. It's uh, hey, it's Murdoch with a K on uh, Twitter. And you can also, you know, leave a review, leave a note uh, anywhere where you download the show or at our website, uh, wearethestoryguys.com. And we love to hear from you. And what, what should people keep doing until next time? Keep listening to our podcast and keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.